Welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful history of France. This week, we'll conclude our six-part series on the Dreyfus Affair, an epic tale of espionage, conspiracy, and political cover-up which rocked the nation of France for half a century. If you haven't listened to parts one, two, three, and four already, I'd begin doing so first, as otherwise this week's tale won't make much sense. And besides, those episodes are really juicy and exciting, and you don't want to miss out. I'll warn you that these final two episodes deal with the anti-Semitic hatred, which was prevalent throughout France at the time, and that imagery isn't always pretty. When we last left off, Commandant Henry's forgery was discovered, and he committed suicide in a cell as the conspiracy against Alfred Dreyfus unraveled. The Criminal Court of Appeals ruled that Alfred Dreyfus's verdict should be revisited, and Alfred received a letter on Devil's Island giving him hope that his luck was finally about to change. Long live the army! Death to the Jews! So wrote one of the anti-Dreyfus crowd to the editors of La Libre Parole, a.k.a. Free Speech, a.k.a. the leading anti-Semitic newspaper of the day. Following the suicide of Commandant Henry, the most anti-Semitic newspaper in France decided to stage a fundraiser for the Commandant's widow. The disgraced, fraudulent, treasonous Commandant Henry deserved a statue. If Alfred Dreyfus's family and friends were feeling optimistic that their struggle was almost over now that the evidence against Alfred was thoroughly debunked, they didn't count on how stubborn and how stupid prejudice can be. 25,000 French citizens contributed from around the country, offering over 130,000 francs for the memorial. More importantly, they also offered their sentiments, a permanent record of French public opinion in the 1890s. It's a veritable who's who of the anti-Dreyfus crowd. It includes 20 retired generals, 336 members of the nobility, and 150 Catholic priests, including one who wished that he could, quote, sleep on a bed of Jewish skin. Contributors expressed wishes to, quote, take down the rifle of our ancestors and fire at the Jews who are poisoning France. Others called for, quote, the saber that will rid us of all the vermin. Contributors dedicated their money to God, his country, and the extermination of the Jews. Jewish people were compared to animals, plagues, cancer, spiders, lice, and pigs. One cook offered to roast the Jews. One military officer offered to massacre them, while a physician suggested dissecting them in science labs. These comments didn't just come from ignorant peasants. These comments were contributed by the middle class, by aristocrats, by intellectuals, physicians, professors, and politicians. In the insanity of prejudice, Alfred Dreyfus is a traitor, while Commandant Henry, who actively conspired to help a German spy sell state secrets and get away with it, he becomes a hero. 
The trial of Alfred Dreyfus gave virulent racists the go-ahead to give in to their worst fears and prejudices and indulge in every nasty thought they had about Jewish people, or intellectuals, or artists, or anybody who didn't just deserve to be kicked out of power, they deserved to die. Remember that for most of the Dreyfus affair, public opinion lived firmly in the realm of the illogical and prejudiced. It would take the courage of public officials to disregard the will of an enormous segment of the people in order to defend an innocent man. In this week's episode, that battle will take place in the highest courts of France. If things seemed to be getting slightly better for Dreyfus, they were about to get much worse for Colonel Picard. As the great conspiracy machine sensed itself losing control over the case of Alfred Dreyfus, it gathered up strength to direct against poor Captain Picard, the last honest man in the military. Despite the fact that Picard's claims of forged evidence had been vindicated, despite the fact that the section of statistics collaboration with the real spy, Colonel Esteragy, was now public knowledge, it did nothing to change the anti-Dreyfus crowd's opinion that Colonel Picard was a guilty man. This was too much, even for people who didn't otherwise have an opinion on the matter. The military was preparing to send Picard up the river in the form of another dreaded court-martial, which would probably be conducted behind closed doors and would probably be, you know, super fair and impartial to Picard's case. Within Parliament, legislators fought to at least keep Colonel Picard's case in the criminal courts, where the trial would be open to the public and they'd be able to keep an eye on the proceedings. In the Chamber of Deputies, where politicians were very sensitive to the views of their constituency, votes reflected the anti-Semitic hatred we just saw emanating from the countryside. Inside the Senate, however, where politicians were a little more aloof from the voters back home, men could be more cautious. They could also be more courageous. It was a room full of lawyers, and they knew a miscarriage of justice when they saw it. The great conspiracy machine screwed up. In their zeal to file for a court-martial against Colonel Picard on charges of espionage, Picard also received a summons to a regular criminal court on charges that he showed top-secret evidence to his lawyer, Louis Leblois, while conducting his investigation into the Dreyfus affair. Picard was being charged for the same crime in military and criminal court. That wouldn't do at all. The evidence against Colonel Picard couldn't be in two places at once. There was no way anybody was going to just start shuttling this incredibly important, famous evidence back and forth across the city. Instead, the High Court of Appeals decided that the criminal case against Colonel Picard was more important, and that Picard wouldn't be disappearing into the vortex of so-called military justice just yet. You can imagine how the anti-Dreyfus crowd took that news. The judges of the criminal chamber of the High Court of Appeals didn't care whether Picard was for or against their own interpretation of the Dreyfus affair. They cared whether he was truly guilty of forging evidence. Once again, the generals and the retired generals of the army took the stand. Once again, Esther Agy uh, declined to return to France in order to testify against Colonel Picard. 
once again, military leaders expressed frustration that the judges were so concerned with justice and not the honor of the army. Meanwhile, fellow judges in the civil chamber of the High Court of Appeals weren't so impartial about this case. In fact, one justice in the civil chamber published an article in the newspaper arguing that his fellow judges in the criminal chamber were hopelessly corrupt and in the pay of the Jewish syndicate. Among other horrible misdeeds, the criminal chamber was accused of, and I am not making this up, offering Colonel Picard a beverage. If that wasn't enough, some weeks later, they offered Colonel Picard a hot toddy. And then, maybe the final straw, at one point when a court session had been delayed, the presiding judge of the criminal chamber apologized to Picard for making him wait. The chamber of deputies in Parliament were shocked and appalled. Debates raged on about whether Colonel Picard had truly received a hot toddy or just hot water. Later, it was revealed that during one of Picard's interrogations, a pitcher of water was on the table. I am not kidding. This debate was exactly as stupid and embarrassing as it sounds. At this point, the military declared, The criminal court is corrupt. We don't accept its verdict overturning the Dreyfus affair. We will only accept a verdict reached by the entire High Court of Appeals. As in, all 80-plus judges in all of the chambers of the High Court of Appeals. Judges who specialized in things like contract disputes, inheritance laws, child custody, taxes. All these guys are going to be asked to give their opinion on a case about espionage. What? The poor, humiliated criminal court received zero defense from the president or the prime minister of France, who proposed changing the judicial code to create this humongous Supreme Court of Appeals. In other words, they said, I don't like the way this court is going to rule, so I'm going to enact a sweeping change to get the verdict I want. The other judges of the High Court of Appeals, who had zero interest in applying their skills in tax law to a super-controversial criminal case, said, uh, gross, no way, no thank you, hard pass. But the Chamber of Deputies didn't care. It passed the law in a landslide. Now it was up to the Senate to ratify this short-sighted legislation. It was at this moment while the Chamber of Deputies debated whether it was or was not corruption to offer a glass of water to someone in a courtroom, while the Prime Minister proposed passing laws to influence the verdict of a single court case, Félix Faure, the President of France, excused himself from dinner and climbed upstairs with his mistress. While they were in the middle of a very, very exciting bout of debate about tax codes, President Faure died of a cerebral hemorrhage. As the president's mistress snuck out the side door, the Dreyfus supporters in Parliament rallied behind their most powerful man in the Parliament, Émile Loubet, and they nominated him for president instead. To the absolute fury of the anti-Dreyfus press, Emile Loubet won. As the new President Loubet began assembling a left-wing cabinet, 
the rabid right-wing extremists began plotting their next move. Their France was not about to be lost to a bunch of cosmopolitan intellectual left-wingers, not if they could stop it. As Emile Loubet took the train to the presidential palace for the first time, he was met at the station by hundreds of hecklers, shouting, Resign! and mobbing his car. Meanwhile, Paul Deroulet, leader of the Ligue de la Patrie Française, a.k.a. the League of White Power Nutjobs, started gathering his troops in preparation for Félix Faure's funeral. According to the League, the Jews were threatening to disrupt the Republic and wrest control of the government. Therefore, their patriotic duty was, naturally, to disrupt the Republic and wrest control of the government first. The plan was this. Félix Faure's funeral would end with a big funeral parade right down the middle of the city. While the government and the military leaders marched down Main Street, Paul Deroulet and five to six thousand of his followers would gather at the Bastille as part of a, quote, memorial. At the last moment, a general who was in on the plan would break away from the parade route, meet up with the mob, and lead them all in a military coup. The critical question was, which general? Remember General Pellieu? He was in charge of the original military investigation into Colonel Esteragy, but he refused to believe Esteragy was the true spy. He had become a fierce anti-Dreyfus icon, and he'd be perfect for the role, right? The day of, Félix Faure's funeral procession rumbled past Notre Dame, and General Pellieu got cold feet. Uh, boss? Sorry, but I don't feel like leading the parade today. Nope, under the weather. Pellieu's boss, the military governor, was very confused, and he insisted Pellieu take his place. No, boss, I, I, I really don't want to do this. Finally, General Pellieu managed to convince a different general to go in his place, a random guy named General Roger. When a very confused General Roger arrived at the Bastille, he saw Paul de Rouled surrounded by a crowd of 200 people. Whoops! Everybody actually RSVP'd no to armed insurrection that day. Desperate to save his position, de Rouled ran up to General Roger and proclaimed him the new leader of a grand and glorious movement. Um, no... No thanks. General Roger tried to shake free of the head nutjob and make his way through the crowd of nutjob supporters, but they all grabbed at his horse and a fight broke out, and about 45 seconds later, a very embarrassed General Roger had all the chief nutjobs locked up in a military barracks while he waited for his superiors to figure out what to do with these treasonous morons. The coup was over before it began. After the dust settled on the coup attempt, France remembered that Colonel Picard was supposed to have a trial. Or was it two trials at once? Despite the meddling of that one grumpy judge who took serious issue with thirsty prisoners, the other branches of the High Court of Appeals did not appreciate the new law. 
The last thing they wanted was to encourage the military and the legislature to interfere in their domain. The High Court's first united act was to say, fine, you want us to rule on this trial together as a family? Then we're gonna need all your evidence in our offices for the foreseeable future. Kiss the court-martial goodbye. Then, when all three branches of the High Court looked at the evidence against Picard, they came to the exact same conclusions as before. On June 3rd, the entire Supreme Court of Appeals, all 80-plus judges, assembled together to read their verdict. Before they began, the presiding judges stood up and shook hands with one another to demonstrate that they would not tolerate the slander of one of their chambers by short-sighted politicians. The military had challenged the judiciary of France, saying, We will only accept the overturning of Dreyfus's verdict if all of the judges of the Court of Appeals annul the verdict. Parliament had said, we will also only accept the overturning of Dreyfus's verdict if all of the judges of the Court of Appeals annul the verdict. And at that moment, the Supreme Court of Appeals said, Fine, you idiots. We all collectively annul the verdict. Dreyfus gets a new trial. That night, a telegram traveled over the sea to Devil's Island, and it told Alfred Dreyfus to start packing up his things. He was reinstated to the army in his previous rank, and he was welcome to wear his uniform again. The next day after the judgment, three big things happened. Number one, Colonel Picard was released from prison. Number two, Emile Zola returned to France. Number three, President Loubet headed out to dedicate a new racetrack and was beaten up by an aristocrat who longed for the good old days of France, and 50 of his friends wearing top hats and canes joined in. If you're wondering when this story will have reached peak absurdity, I don't know what to tell you. The hits just keep on coming, so to speak. One week later, while the president of France held a stake over his black eyes, Alfred Dreyfus finally boarded a ship. After four years and three months, he was coming home. The three-week voyage was rough, and an already weak and malnourished Alfred spent the entire time feeling miserable. Once they arrived in France, Alfred was too weak to climb into a dinghy carrying him to shore, and he injured his legs. Then, while a crazy storm rocked his tiny boat violently from side to side, Alfred was forced to climb into a lifeboat. It took Alfred five hours to travel from the boat to the beach, before being locked up in a new and different prison to await his new court-martial. The guy couldn't catch a break. But at long last, the next morning, the door to Alfred's new jail cell opened. It was Lucy. At the same moment that Alfred Dreyfus's trial was gearing up, a new sheriff arrived in town. After a reshuffling in the government, René Waldeck-Rousseau emerged as the new Prime Minister of France. 
As a respected politician of the center-right, Waldeck Rousseau was a personal friend of Alfred Dreyfus's lawyer, Edgar Demange, and it was no secret that he thought Alfred Dreyfus was innocent. As a prime minister, however, Waldeck Rousseau's primary concern wasn't Dreyfus's freedom. It was the safety and stability of the nation of France. Even though the whole thing had turned out to be a joke, the far right wing had attempted a military coup. By the end of 1899, it wasn't only Alfred Dreyfus and Colonel Picard at stake, it was the entire French Republic. From the moment he assumed office, Waldeck Rousseau began showing the far right who was boss. Paul de Roulette and his insurrectionist cronies? Arrested. The military? Seriously overhauled, with most of its leaders removed, retired, or reshuffled. The church? better stay away from any threats to overthrow the government if they wanted to keep their tax-exempt status. If Waldeck Rousseau wanted to wrap up this national nightmare once and for all, he was going to have to bring an end, one way or another, to the Dreyfus Affair. In the weeks leading up to his new court-martial, Alfred Dreyfus grew acquainted with his team of supporters, many of whom he had never met. His trusted, forever reliable lawyer, Edgar Demange, greeted him with tears in his eyes. His new lawyer, Fernand Laborie, who had defended Emile Zola and Captain Picard, was a firebrand who sought the opportunity to purge the government of its corruption at last. Edgar Demange supported Dreyfus the man, while Fernand Laborie supported Dreyfus the cause. At first, the two worked in harmony together to construct a common defense strategy. Soon, however, a gulf divided the two lawyers, a gulf which would swallow up the entire pro-Dreyfus movement before the end. Prime Minister Waldeck Rousseau wanted order, and he didn't care how he got it. He didn't want the military to take over the nation, but he didn't want the military to abandon it either. How to make both sides happy? First, Waldeck Rousseau insisted that the government press charges against Dreyfus in order to prove that he had received a fair retrial. Dreyfus and his team protested all the evidence against him had been disbarred. On what grounds should he be charged with anything at all? But Prime Minister Waldeck Rousseau wanted to demonstrate to the anti-Dreyfus crowd that the government was impartial, so that Dreyfus's inevitable acquittal would be all the more final. But what if it failed? Fernand Laborie asked. What if Alfred lost again? Second, Prime Minister Waldeck Rousseau began dropping hints that he would consider an amnesty for the military leaders involved in the Dreyfus affair. How else to put the damned affair behind us than to forgive and move forward? If the Dreyfus legal team would go easy on the government and not embarrass the heck out of it on the stand, the government would offer support to Dreyfus and make sure that he got off. Fernand Laborie was furious at such an idea. The point of this trial wasn't to get justice for Dreyfus, it was to get justice for the nation of France. How could there be justice if those military traitors walked free? 
In a final twist of irony, the Dreyfus camp found itself facing the same dilemma as the military leaders themselves. Is it more important to save a man or an ideal? Just as Generals Mercier and Boisdeff were happy to sacrifice the innocent Alfred Dreyfus to maintain the ideal of a just and fair military, Fernand Laborie was willing to sacrifice Alfred Dreyfus as well, to root out corruption. Alfred Dreyfus's new court-martial was only a few days away, and his closest supporters were at each other's throats. On August 7, 1899, the new court-martial of Alfred Dreyfus began. Everything started from scratch, from the state's evidence, to the so-called secret evidence, to the testimony of the military leaders. By now, the testimony was a well-worn script. How different things were now. Instead of three days, Alfred's trial stretched on for weeks while the nation picked over evidence which was as familiar as a childhood story by now. There was the bordereau, which was used to convict Dreyfus, the Petit Bleu, which named Colonel Estragi. This time, Colonel Dreyfus was allowed to speak in his own defense. Unfortunately, he didn't do much with the opportunity. The poor man was broken and by his very nature, an unemotional man. He stammered, growing dizzy on the stand, his eyes watering, unable to sort out his thoughts. Four years of starvation and solitary confinement left Alfred Dreyfus useless in his own defense. He staggered off the stand. The next day, it would be the military's turn to take the stand to discuss the secret dossier. And now, dear listeners, is when I lose my cool. After everything the military had done to betray the nation's trust, after the nation already knew about the forged evidence, the late-night meetups with Colonel Estragi, the blackmail, the mysterious deaths, the court-martial judges decided that the sessions involving the military's evidence against Dreyfus would be barred to the public in, and I quote, the interest of the national defense. It makes me want to throw up just thinking about it. Guess what happened? The general in charge of presenting the military's file on Dreyfus forged the evidence again. The night before his presentation of the file, the general tried to add some new documents to the file to bolster the military's case against Dreyfus. When the general was called out for it in front of the entire court-martial, the general gave a big shrug. Whoopsie-daisy! A few days later, as Colonel Picard and Fernand Laborie arrived on the courthouse steps, gunshots rang out. As a young man fled the scene, Laborie slumped to the ground. Screams were heard from within the courtroom, and the court was adjourned. Laborie miraculously survived, but he spent the next week in bed, miserable, as the police naturally failed to track down his would-be assassin and as Dreyfus's defense slipped out of his hands. For the rest of the week, the military generals took the stand to repeat the same lies they'd been telling for four years. For most people in the room, this was old hat, They'd seen Generals Mercier and Boisdeff up there many times before, saying the same things over and over. 
But Alfred Dreyfus, imprisoned on his island, so far removed from the courtrooms in which his fate had played out, watched for the very first time as his heroes, his idols, his mentors took to the stand and lied. All those years on Devil's Island, Alfred Dreyfus had been convinced that the entire affair was a mistake, one which an honorable military would correct as soon as it had the chance. Sure, it had taken longer than expected, but here he was, wasn't he? Yet watching General Boisdeff, something very fragile inside of Alfred Dreyfus finally broke. At a moment when his supporters expected the betrayed Dreyfus to be furious and passionate, he was only sad and speechless. Commandant Henry was dead. Colonel Esteragy was overseas. There was no one to cross-examine, no one to interrogate. Fernand Laborie was hurt, suffering from his gunshot wound as well as typhoid fever. The well-meaning Edgar Demange didn't have the fire in the belly needed to inspire passion in Dreyfus's cause. Against all common sense and decency, it was starting to look as though Alfred Dreyfus was going to be convicted again. Dreyfus supporters were dumbfounded, with one leading socialist writing in the newspaper, given this irremediable moral collapse and definitive fall into stupidity, France may have no other resource than revolution. Only Colonel Picard remained optimistic. On September 8th, Edgar de Mange rose to give a closing statement. As Labori feared, the statement was accommodating to the military generals, in hopes that expressing respect for the army would render a merciful judgment from the military judges of the court-martial. No mention of the army's great betrayals, its forgeries, its conspiracies. Labori was disgusted, and in his final opportunity to speak, to offer the grand sweeping arguments which had so justly won Laborie fame and fortune, he declined to speak, and he remained seated in his chair. Dreyfus's team was willing to sacrifice the nation's ideals to obtain a favorable verdict. On September 8th, at 3.15 p.m., the judges withdrew for deliberations. One and a half hours later, the verdict was reached. As with his previous court-martial, Dreyfus wasn't allowed in the courtroom, but he remained in his cell. Edgar de Mange sat quietly, his hands folded as though in prayer. Fernand Laborie sat bolt upright, not looking anyone in the eye. The presiding military judge rose, and he cleared his throat, and he read, In the name of the French people, by a majority of five votes to two. Gotcha! You're gonna have to wait until the final concluding episode of The Dreyfus Affair to find out exactly what the verdict was. You can find more information about this episode and the rest of the series at www.thelandofdesire.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please help me spread the word by rating and reviewing The Land of Desire on iTunes and mentioning the show on social media, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even Reddit. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll join me 
for the final episode in our series on the Dreyfus Affair.